We turn in the Word of God to Psalm 100. And I want this morning in Providence to address directly those who are cynics and atheists regarding spiritual things. Now, both terms are themselves interesting. The word cynic simply means dog-like. The founder of cynicism, Diogenes, 5th century before Christ. Like dogs, they treated everything with contempt. They sought to rack everything, to confuse people, to undermine everything. They held with contempt morality. Everything had to be undermined. They treated everything with suspicion. The family was treated with suspicion. Patriotism, treated with suspicion. Religious belief, treated with suspicion. They were all viewed as oppressive. You know, one of the fascinating things about history, which is very important, we should never panic about any seemingly new idea that comes along. Because it's all been heard before. No one can come up with an original idea. And we simply just rely on the word of God to refute every modern idea we have heard. For it's all been heard before. The cynicism of the 5th century BC is a very same philosophy that is taught in our universities. Everything is oppressive. Everything must be treated with suspicion. Everything must be torn down. But what do they want in its place? Listen to the voices in the public square. And they're saying the same things that the cynics said in the 5th century. The other interesting word is atheism. It may be a surprise to some of you that it was actually first applied to Christians. Why were Christians first called atheists? Because in the days of the Roman Empire, they rejected pluralism. They rejected all the gods of the Roman Empire and demanded and insisted allegiance only to one king, Jesus Christ, only one God, Jehovah. And so the Romans called Christians atheists. Well, the atheists of the day, of course, are not Christians because they reject everything. That Christianity teaches. Which brings me to Psalm 100, and particularly verse 3. And we look at this verse and its context under this heading, lies and truth. Now the psalm falls into three parts, verses 1 and 2, approaching God. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. It's in capitals, Yahweh. Jehovah, this is the God whom we worship. So we approach this God. Verses 3 and 4, apprehending God, know ye. And then in verses uh, 5, we have adoring God. The Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. You know, one of our faults, as Christians, we get suspicious of God, don't we? If we are honest, we doubt his goodness. We doubt that God loves us. We doubt that God is kind to us. We get suspicious. When certain things happen we don't like, we actually start to question God. But if there's a theme running through all the Psalms, there are a number of themes. In fact, every doctor in the church preaches is found here. But one of the themes running through the Psalms is the Lord is good. The Lord is good and the Lord does good. That's the conviction of the church and the people of God. The Lord is good. Let's not be suspicious in times of trial. Samuel Rutherford says, you know, it is better to be sick in bed and the Savior come and draw the curtains and say, I am thy Redeemer. 
than to be in hell and never to be visited by God. The Lord is good. Well, let's consider then lies and truth. First of all, the lies told are promoted in society, and they're fine that we hear of. First of all, that Christianity is irrational, which is contrary to what the psalmist says, know ye that the Lord is good. But we're told that Christianity is irrational. It's a widespread view that Christianity is all about feelings and emotions, that we're really irrational beings. But the origin of this lie is with the Enlightenment. In the Enlightenment, the idea arose, men were rational, women were irrational, therefore religion is for women. Those were the great thinkers of the Enlightenment, some of whom were here in Scotland. We talk about the Scottish Enlightenment. But this was the idea. It's carried on through evolution. Evolution teaches Christianity is irrational, that Christianity retards progress. Well, that's an astonishing lie in itself. Anyone with a, modic, uh, uh, a small view of history, no matter how small that is, if they have any knowledge of history, they know how untrue it is, how often it has been Christians who have been the inventors, who have been the pioneers, who have been the creators of incredible events in the world of humanity. For those of you who like farming, you know, of course, that the greatest invention in the agricultural community was the three-point linkage. If you're a tiny, you don't know what that is. Well, I feel sorry for you, but it was a fantastic invention. Invented by a man who attended Drumlock Presbyterian Church in County Down, Harry Ferguson. It revolutionized agriculture. It's Christians and those from a Christian background who often were the inventors of these incredible things that are so beneficial to society and to industry and to agriculture. But let's not accept the lie that Christianity is irrational. The second thing, they say that Christianity is intolerant. This is a common lie that's put about in our culture. In our society, pluralism is seen as the optimum belief well, Christianity rejects that. We're not required to swallow every lie that's in our public square. So Christianity rejects the lie of pluralism. That's why we're seen as intolerant. But isn't it interesting, the ones who shout most about tolerance are the ones who are most intolerant. We meet it in the workplace. We meet it in the school. We meet it in business life. The ones who keep shouting toleration are the most intolerant. It all ignores a simple reality. It is entirely impossible to be absolutely, completely tolerant of everything. No person in human history has ever taken that position. You say, you Christians, you discriminate. Of course we do. Isn't that what the law itself does? The law discriminates between one action and another. You drive through a red light on Storno and the police stop you. You're not going to say to the constable, you're being very intolerant. You're not going to complain that that traffic light system is discriminatory. The real question is, which discrimination is the right discrimination to discriminate with? That's the nub of the issue, and that's the thing that all of these ungodly people do not want to confront, they do not want to address, because they think it's easier to simply say, you Christians are intolerant, while they are busy denying you your rights and everything else, and want you to be quiet and say nothing. Let them do all the talking, all the shouting and all the roaring. And we Christians are expected, even if required, to deny Christ. They tell us 
keep your religion at home. Don't bring it into work. But they bring their ideology into work, don't they? They bring what they believe into the workplace. But they think the Christian should be silent. The third lie that we have in our culture, there is no God, is a very popular lie. It's actually a most convenient lie because it means no truth, no moral absolutes, no accountability, no meaning to anything, no significance, and no judgment. It is a most convenient lie because it means that every individual can decide for themselves at any one point in time whether something is right or wrong, whether it's permissible or not permissible. Everyone is their own God. Everyone has their own standard. So the burglar who breaks into the house, he says there's no God. He says, well, I'm taking what I want. And I shouldn't be held accountable. They don't just break in. They want to beat up the occupant with a club hammer. And they think that's fine to do that. Then they get arrested and they're brought to court and they plead not guilty. The British Humanist Society put it this way. Here's a wonderful philosophy. Here's where you get to if you don't have a God. We live in a prison. A world without windows. With no exit, no external world. What a horrible philosophy is that? They see the world as a prison. Who is it that sets the prisoners free? Christ sets the prisoners free. That's what the church declares. But these humanists want to be in a prison. They don't want any God. They don't want any reference to a supreme being outside themselves. They say there's no God. How convenient. So somebody breaks into their house and assaults their daughter, and then suddenly, this is terrible. But then you point out to them the conclusion of their own philosophy. If there is no God, what's your problem? Why are you complaining? That's the consequences of an ideology that says there is no God. The fourth lie, that our existence is a fluke. By sheer luck and time, we've come into existence. So since our existence is a fluke, they say, life is a farce and we end as fertilizer. So they want eco-friendly coffins because there's nothing beyond death. What you do to others or is done to others doesn't matter. Unless, of course, you belong to what nowadays is called the victim class. If you belong to a victim class, well, then that does matter in this life. But there's a cruelty that arises from this ide ideology that says our life and our existence is all a farce and it's a fluke. There's an incredible, nasty cruelty to this ideology. Listen to this. Who misses the 20 million killed by Stalin? Who misses the six million Jews killed by Hitler? The cruelty of this lie. A lie that says it doesn't matter how many children are killed in the womb. It doesn't matter if you kill off the elderly or the disabled. There's an incredible cruelty that arises in a culture that says our existence is a fluke. So it doesn't matter what you do to others. Doesn't matter. No one is missed. Do as you like. And then there's a fifth lie. Everyone is equal. Well, 
unless you fall into that category that is now despised. Otherwise, everyone else is equal. All opinions are equal. You have no right to assert that your opinion on Christian things is more correct than another opinion. Everybody's views are equal, no matter how shocking, how wicked, how abominable those opinions and views are, they're all to be treated with respect. Unless, of course, from within this culture, they tell you that reason and mathematics and classical music, they say, are all evidence of Judeo-Christian Male white superiority. It's all got to go. Other than that, everything else is equal. So the pretense must be maintained. And that's all it is, friends, a pretense. Because they just can't bear their lies being exposed, being critiqued. Everyone is to accept the lie. You know, biology is seen as dreadful theory. We're all to reject biology for psychology. How you feel you are is what you are. This is not a new theory, by the way. Again, if you know your history. That's the very thing that the Gnostics taught in the second century. That the physical reality is not the real you, it's the internal that matters. The only difference between then and now is that the surgeons can recreate the terrain to suit the so-called psychological inner self. So that one can change from being a male to female. But the idea is not new. And everyone's supposed to say, isn't this grand? What a wonderful lie. Let's believe the lie. Everyone must swallow the lie. Well, those are some lies promoted. Let's come secondly to truth. Four truths that the psalmist deals with. First of all, he tells you, Faith has content. Let no one here today or at any time in the future or the past or whatever ever think that the Christian faith is irrational. That it's just a bunch of hang-ups and feelings. The psalmist says, Know ye that. Go through Scripture, he says, and you have the content of faith set out. It isn't a feeling, yet we experience it for ourselves. But it's a series of truths that are of fundamental importance to defining Christianity and what a Christian is. And if those truths are missing, you can't have genuine faith. Hebrews eleven six: He that cometh to God must believe that. And what follows that is important. It tells you the content. There are things you must believe about God. You must believe that he is, his existence, that he's the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, about the attributes and characteristics of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.14, we believe that what follows. Jesus died and rose again. You cannot be a Christian and reject the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so all Christians together say, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Think of Martha's testimony in John eleven twenty seven. I believe that. What did she believe precisely? That thou art 
the Christ. I believe that, she says. Do you believe that? Did you come to this public means of grace saying, I believe that Jesus is the Christ? Faith without content is mere credulity. C.H. Spurgeon said of a man being asked what he believed. The man replied, I believe what the church believes. Well, what does the church believe? It believes what I believe. Well, what do you and the church believe? We both believe the same thing. That just won't do, sure won't. You need content. What exactly does the Bible teach? What exactly are you required to believe? And if you don't have that content, you cannot be a Christian. This is why preaching takes so long. The word is preached, setting out those things most surely believed amongst us. So that young and old alike are hearing the same content, the same doctrines, the same truths, so that the children grow up knowing this is what a Christian believes. So that when they're in the playground, the neighborhood, and someone says, so I hear your parents are Christian. So what, what do they believe? And they can say, oh, well, I can tell you some things that we believe. And with the help of the catechism, they can set it out a little further. What are they doing? They're actually doing the most wonderful thing. They're saying there is content. These are the things we believe about God, about Christ, about the Bible, about sin, about salvation, all those topics. In the shorter and larger catechism. And then when they get older, the confession of faith, chapter after chapter. What is a confession of faith? It is setting out from Scripture the content of the Christian faith. The second truth, there is only one God. The Lord, he is God. The word Lord here, as you know, refers to Jehovah or Yahweh, the God who makes and keeps covenant. In other words, the only one true and living God. And that's what we believe. That's whom we believe. We believe in God. We believe in Yahweh, Jehovah, the God who makes and keeps covenant with his people. We don't believe Allah is God. We don't believe Buddha is God or any other gods of this world. Like those early Christians, we reject all the gods of the world. Like the Israelites going into Canaan, all the gods were false. They had sworn allegiance to the God who redeemed them from bondage. The God who said to them, I am your God and ye shall be my people. I will be your father. I'll be a father unto you and to your children after you. And this God exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'll quote Rutherford again. And he talks about those who are living on their own, who are lonely. He says, you're not lonely. He said, there's three people living with you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful truth. The triune God lives with us. And as I've said before, the invisible God revealed in the incarnation in Jesus Christ. The Son reveals the Father. God enfleshed. So the Christian therefore can say, we know who God is. We don't need to speculate 
as to the existence and the nature of God. We know who God is. For he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And he has taught us everything we need to know about the Father. And this one true God reveals himself in male terms. The Lord, he is God. Yes, there are numerous similes, metaphors, and analogies that are used in Scripture. We accept all of that and do not in any way diminish them. Take Matthew 23 and verse 37. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? And ye would not. There are lots of similes, analogies, and metaphors describing something of God to us. Yet, there is a specific gendered language for God. The Savior has taught us to pray, Our Father. And I say to you, dear friends, we must not become embarrassed or ashamed of this gendered language that God has revealed himself in male terms. And when you sing these psalms, the language for God himself is he, him, his. Look at Psalm 103. We read there in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Verse 9. He will not always chide. Neither will he keep his anger wherever. Verse 10. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, and so on. Verse 11, For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. So when you sing the Psalms, you sing a specific language about God, that he is the true God, you sing of all the attributes of God, the characteristics of God, but you also sing that he is God. So there's only one God. That is a truth that the church declares and preachers preach. You see, my friends, if there are many gods, the existence of the church is irrelevant. It calls into question the whole matter of salvation itself, our very existence. It means the church has been telling lies since the fall itself. But the church has not been lying. The church declares what God himself has revealed. There's only one true God. All the gods of the heathen are idols dumb, is what we sing. The third truth, God made us. It is he that made us and not we ourselves. Our existence then is not a fluke. The true and living God made us. Now let's work out this truth. In the first place, it means we're not an accident. But by divine fiat, we were brought into existence. Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man. So our existence is specific at a specific moment in time. 
God's decree is made visible. He made man, created us. In an instant. And secondly, how God made us. We have this whole issue about identity. Who are we? What are we? And suddenly, all of the intellectuals in our universities are seemingly perplexed about identity. Who are we? Well, the church knows who we are. We've been teaching it since creation itself. How did God make us from the dust of the earth? Isn't that what Genesis 2 tells us? From the dust of the earth. So that means that we have earthly sensations. We hear earthly things. We see earthly things. There's a lot of earth about us. Genesis 2 and verse 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. How else did he make us? He made us with two parts, body and soul. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. What happens when the soul is taken from this physical frame? The body ceases to move. So you're not merely a physical being, but also a metaphysical being. There's a spiritual dimension to the existence of every human being in the whole world. And Paul deals with that, doesn't he, in Romans 1 how it is and why it is that all are left without excuse. Natural revelation. And planted within every single person is that inner knowledge that God exists. It's not enough to save, but it's enough to leave everyone without excuse. God made you from the dust of the earth with a body and a soul. And how else did he make us? as male and female, biologically different. A difference that doesn't begin at birth. You see, what they're now telling us is, well, you know, the doctor may have made a mistake. He looked at the physical realities of the little infant in front of him and said, I think that's a boy, or I think that's a girl. We'll put it on the birth certificate. They come along and they say, well, actually, he made a mistake. The difference doesn't begin at birth. The difference began at conception. Before you saw the light of day. Before the child is born, it is already determined whether it is male or female. So to Eve, as a woman, God speaks of conception. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, and sorrow shalt thou bring forth children. And speaks of her husband, thy desire shall be to thy husband. And then you have all those similes and descriptions and the word of God regarding all of this. In other words, the biological reality that began at creation, carried forward and used as prophets preach, Isaiah 26 and verse 17, like as a woman with child, like that, he says, that draweth near to the time of her delivery is in pain and crieth out in her pangs, so have we been in thy sight, O Lord. So he takes that physical, biological reality and draws a spiritual truth from it. But if the biological reality doesn't exist, the spiritual lesson is simply destroyed. So scripture uses that difference to teach us things. Or you take John chapter 16 and in verse 21. 
a woman when she is in travail, how sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish or joy that a man is born into the world. So the, the woman in labor and great pain, but when it's all over and the child is born, she forgets the pain. The infant is in her arms. And you get all these biological descriptions in the word of God. And sometimes I think as preachers, we just need to draw attention to some of these biological realities just to let people know we believe what the Bible teaches about our existence, about our identity, about who we are. God made us. We're not an accident. He made us from the dust of the earth. He made us with a body and a soul. He made us male and female. Some are men, some are women. You can't be anything else. And all of those wonderful spiritual lessons that are drawn from this. Oh, how enriching. How spiritually enriching it all is. You ever thought about that? These things that are described for you. We, we, have, we experience them in life. We see them happening. You know, we uh, folk get married. The Lord is pleased to bring conception into the womb of that mother, and we see that growth and development. And then you read of these spiritual lessons that are drawn from this. You know, Flavel the Puritan spoke of spiritual husbandry. It's not a thing we're good at. We're so good at talking about so many other things, but drawing spiritual lessons from things. My dear friends, there's a soul enrichment with all of this. And you lose it all if you take the lie of culture you swallow the culture around us. We must be anti-culture. We must confront the culture. That's the position of the church, to confront the culture around us. We're at war with our culture. Well, we must move on. Fourth truth. We know where we belong. We know where we belong. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Why is a Christian a settled, contented being in life? Because we know where we belong. There's a place that we are part of. We belong to it. In other words, this one true God owns us. How does he own us? Well, you know all of these truths by election and calling, by redemption, by justification, by glorification. You know all those truths. But all of those truths put together, they tell you, I belong to God. I don't belong to the world. I don't belong to the devil. I belong to God. And that is the most astonishing reality that we have. We belong to him. He owns us. He bought us. He purchased us. He redeemed us. He called us. And this God he owns us says, and I'll bring you into heaven. There's that settled position. We belong. Where do we belong? To whom do we belong? We belong to Jehovah. We belong to him. And there is that nice phrase in scripture. If my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me up. If my biological parents abandon me, throw me out into the street as an orphan. I have a Father in heaven. I belong to God. We're all getting older. You don't need me to tell you that. And in due time, we'll be so old and decrepit 
and so physically infirm we'll not even be able to get to the public means of grace. And we'll miss the fellowship of the Lord's people. And because we're shut at home, everybody might forget that we're still alive. But we haven't been abandoned by our Heavenly Father. The Father set his love upon us. That love will never end. He sent his Son into the world to redeem us, to rescue us, to deliver us. And the Father and the Son sent the Spirit into our hearts to alter us and change us. It's called regeneration and conversion. We were born again. We became new creatures. Some of you, perhaps in your 20s and 30s, had that wonderful experience. But providence... Providence sends us very hard lessons. Hard providences exist. Difficult problems arise. And our lives sometimes are turned simply upside down. Brought to despair. Don't know what's going to happen. Here we are, we look back and we say, you know, I wouldn't have had it any other way. The Lord's way was right. Because of the impact and consequences of those hard and difficult providences in my life. Oh, at the time, dreadful, terrible, but looking back, I can say he has done all things well. He didn't say it at the time. But by grace, we have learned to see it and say it. So I say to those who are Christians, with all of your trials and difficulties, you belong to God. Trust him. He will not forsake. He will not abandon. He doesn't change. Trust him. The Lord is good. Then thirdly, we're getting there. Consequences. We have five lies, four truths, three consequences. What are the consequences of all of this truth? Firstly, serve the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness. Isn't that what the psalmist tells you? Verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. What is a Christian? How do you recognize a Christian? Don't you recognize a Christian even with all of their tears? They serve the Lord with gladness. They serve Jehovah, the God who made them, who alone is God, who made them, who chose them, who set them apart, who loved them. Whatever the Lord does, he will serve him. What did one say? Though he kill me, though he slay me, I will trust him. I will serve him. With gladness. Remember Ambrose. You know he's brought before the Roman Empire. And he knows this. This is not a good meeting. He's facing death. But he is given a bargain. You deny Christ. And I'll let you live. Ambrose said. I am 80 years of age. What has the Lord done against me? in all the years that I've served him, that I would deny him now. Has the Lord done anything bad to me that I would deny him? 
Has he wronged me in any way that I would deny him? The Lord has never wronged any of his children. He has never turned his back to us. He may have spoken roughly to us when we needed it. He may have been silent when we cried to him for a while. But he has never done us any harm. He has never done a single wrong against us. All that he has done to us and for us and will yet do for us is all of grace and kindness and mercy. So Ambrose was right. Why would I deny Christ? Second, the sing to God with gladness. He says in verse 2, come before his presence with singing. Singing is a big part of the Christian's life. Why do we gather on the Lord's day? To sing to God. What shall we sing? The songs this God has given us. How shall we sing his songs to him? With thanksgiving. We should be a thankful people. Shouldn't we? Do we like that little phrase, Ebenezer? Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Do we come to sing to God using his words that he has given you? So we must understand his words because you are to sing with the understanding. That's why I try as often as I can to give you a little, a quick outline of the psalm so that you can see the reasoning of the psalmist, the points that he's making. You're singing God's word back to God with gladness. And the third consequence is the core reason. Verse 5, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endureth to all generations. So the core reason for all of this is his goodness, his mercy, and his truth. Every children, all the children in this congregation can understand this simple reason. His goodness, his mercy, and his truth. Three great topics, all connected together. And if the children do not understand, ask your parents, tell me about the Lord's Goodness, mercy, and truth. Remember Jacob? When he finally sees Joseph, and he sees the grandchildren, he brings the grandchildren to him. And he talks to them about his father and his grandfather. And he tells them about the Lord, the Lord who shepherded him, who was his pastor all his days. He's telling his grandchildren about this wonderful lineage of goodness, mercy, and truth. Grandparents, can you do that with your grandchildren? Well, let's finish very simply with two points of application. And I need to ask each and every one of you, whose side are you on today? You're on the side of the world, of our culture, what's going on in the public square? Are you on the Lord's side, God's side? You see, if you remove this God, we know the consequence. Just look around you. Look at what's going on. We have teenagers who come to a school and they say, I identify as a cat. That's what happens when this God is removed. 
irrationality, my friends, has come. Romans 1, you see before you. Adults surgically mutilating teenagers for life as a consequence. Wickedness has come. Evil is all around us. And so I say to all the cynics and all the atheists, only this God can deliver us from all of this wretchedness, all of this irrationality. And one thing the church better not do is to deny this God and to diminish this God. Take away from him his glory, his sovereignty, his beauty, his power. Are we on God's side? And finally, there can be no neutrality. There is no neutrality. We don't believe it. And we don't believe it because the Lord has taught us that. You can't love God and love the world at the same time. You love the world, you can't love God, and the love of God is not in you. So we confront the world, we confront the culture out of love to God and love to sinners. Out of the honor of Jesus Christ. No neutrality. I say to Christians, you're not neutral. Don't even try. Don't even pretend. You know Christ. Jealousy for Christ removes the whole idea of neutrality. May the Lord bless these words to your hearts. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do thank thee for this unchanging word. And as we began our service crying out to thee that thou wouldst bless thy cause and bless thy people, so we conclude with that same prayer, now armed with the teaching of Scripture. Give us courage, wisdom, holy boldness to answer the culture in which we live, that we might explain and reason with them, showing them the consequences of their irrationality, and all oh, the wonder and richness of what the Bible teaches. We bless thee for thy word. May we know more of Scripture and read it more and understand it more. And may we love the word in a world of unloving, hateful, dreadful things. Bless us, then, we pray. Pardon our sins for Christ's sake. Amen.